Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. New live from Speed Technologies. The Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening and welcome home. It has, oops, it has been a absolutely wild past couple of weeks. It was Linux Fest Northwest, then it was Ubuntu Summit this week, and so it, it has. It's been in and around and busy, 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 but delighted to be back and happy that we were able to do all of that without mostly any interruptions to the show. Are you ready to get into some feedback? Let's do it. Our first email comes in from Joey. Joey writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I have an AV question for you. I need to get a video signal to a TV via HDMI. I tried with the Access P3228 LVE and a bright sign XT114T digital signage player, but I get a three-second lag. Change the frame per second or the resolution does not make a noticeable difference. Are you aware of any HDMI decoder that would have little to no latency or camera equipped with HDMI output in the $100 price range. Thanks. So I'll answer it backwards. As far as cameras that have HDMI out, I would encourage you to check out the Axis M3065. It's a 1080p camera, and it does in fact have a micro HDMI out. Now, as far for, as your HDMI encoder decoder, you're never going to be able to, enc- well, let me walk that back a little bit. There are very few ways that you can encode and decode a live video signal without much delay. And really, it comes down to one way, and it's called NDI. And we'll have a link for you in the show notes on where you can read more about NDI. But NDI is is a protocol for transmitting live, low-latency video. The downside to using NDI is, A, it's, the equipment is pricey, B, the second problem you're going to have is it has a very specific there's very specific cameras that will have ndi built in and for the most part you're going to use external encoders and decoders and you're definitely not going to do that on a 500 hundred dollar budget if i had 500 bucks and i needed to get a video signal from a camera over to a tv what i would do i would either buy an access p3065 which has an hdmi out now i'm using the access camera because you suggested an access camera and I'm giving you an, an alternative that has an, a micro HDMI port. The other thing you could do is use like little Sony Handycams. I think Sony makes a fantastic camera for a, a, a stupid cheap amount of money. And so if you just want a good quality picture with HDMI, you might check out uh, some of Sony Handycams. Um, the other thing in, in, in specific, I don't have the model off the top of my head, but Chase Nunez does a lot of streaming with pin poles, or at least he used to, and he had a very elaborate setup comprised entirely of Sony Handycams. And when I would watch the videos, I remember being very impressed with how fantastic the image quality was. 
and knowing that they were being produced from, you know, sub $200 cameras. I thought that was really great. As far as actually moving the video from point A to point B, one of the things I would encourage you to look into is SDI. SDI is a digital interface for transmitting video. It's basically like a professional commercial version of HDMI without all the copy protection. But the advantage to SDI is a couple of fold. First of all, you can, the cable itself is cheap. You can use quad shielded R, uh, RJ6 uh, coax cable. And so that's going to run you, you know, not even uh, 50 cents a foot, uh, maybe closer to like 25 cents a foot. The other thing is that it has user replaceable lens. So you can just buy BNC connectors and strip the coax cable, stick a BNC connector on there, crimp it, and you're good. Good luck crimping an HDMI end on. It's not going to happen. If you're going to do it at all, you're going to wind up with special connectors. You're going to solder and do all the things. And most of the time, you're not going to do that. You're going to buy a molded HDMI cable, and then you have to deal with running it and fishing it through with the end on. It's just a mess. And the other problem is once you do all of that and they get to the next standard of HDMI, now you got to rip the cable back out of the wall and put the new one in. So two ways you can get around it. One way is SDI. And so in that case, you would buy an SDI converter on each side. Now, if you're looking for the cheapest way to do that, Blackmagic makes just a drop-in SDI to HDMI, HDMI to SDI converter, and they're like maybe 70, 80 bucks. So all in, a camera and the two converters, maybe you're still under that $500 price point. If you want to get a little bit more complex with it, I always try to mention the decimator because it has been a, an absolute lifesaver in video. I, to this day, I, today, I don't know how it would go back from not using decimators. So the decimator, if you've not played with it before, is an SDI to HDMI scaler. So what it does is has the ability to take, you can tell it, this really picky consumer device has, H, has HDMI and it needs to see everything at, you know, 29.9 frames, 97 frames per second and a 1080p signal. And the decimator can be programmed to always output exactly that output, no matter what input it's fed. And so you can plug something in that's HDMI 30 frames per second or 24 frames or whatever, and it will make all of the necessary conversions to spit out the exact same video signal every single time. And you can go the other way too and say, I'm going to feed it in SDI and I want to feed out HDMI, whatever you need to do. And it's like a jackknife of all trades. And so I use the decimator, the, the quad, uh, the 3G SDI multi-viewer. I, I use one of those every time I have a situation where I know somebody's going to be bringing in a laptop and we have to interface it to a bunch of systems. Why? Because I can tell the decimator, hey, I just I, this is the way that you're going to output my signal via SDI and into capture card, projector, TV, all of the things, distributor, multiplexer, whatever the other end is. And when you're bringing in a video signal, I have no idea what you're going to get. Because it'll entirely depend on what the person's laptop has. And then all we have to do is tell, tell the person is just make sure something is coming out of an HDMI port. And if that's 480 or 4K, it doesn't matter. The decimator will handle it and change it up and spit out the right video signal. The downside of the decimators are they're going to run like $300. So it's going to, it's going to, it's going to blow the decimators alone will blow your $500 budget. So I only put them in there because I just can't in good conscience talk about SDI without talking about how much, how many headaches. The decimator has saved me. But if you can't afford right now to do that, you could run quad shielded cable for, you know, pennies on the dollar, put a, put BNC connectors on it, use some Blackmagic SDI converters or some cheap Chinesium converters, and you can go that route. If you need to be absolutely bottom dollar, the other way to do this, run a pair of Cat6 cables and on each end use an HDMI ballon. And an HDMI ballon is going to essentially turn a RG6 cable 
into an HDMI cable. Now, doesn't have any of the advantages of uh, SDI. However, you do retain the ability of when the next version of HDMI comes out, you don't have to worry about is it up to date and is it going to work and all the things you just put the new version uh, or you just go buy another set of multi or, uh, excuse me balance and plug them in. Now, SDI, I've literally snaked SDI cable around an ice rink before and you can carry a video signal a long way. With HDMI over Cat 6 or Cat 7, you're going to get like 165 feet. So in my, my estimation, still way better than snaking an actual HDMI cable in the wall. In my estimation, still way better than not having to replace that thing, as there's still some advantages. And the balance are going to cost you $39 for the pair. So that's like 20 bucks a piece. So it's absolutely the cheapest way to do it. And I would still argue this is a better way to go than running HDMI cable. But if you can afford to do so, get to SDI, my friend. You'll be much happier. Our second, in, I should ask Steve, I, I assume this isn't uh, your wheelhouse, but anything to add there? No, uh, you got it all. <laughs> Way more on your wheelhouse. Tiny asks in the Geek Lab, so this is becoming an increasingly popular way for people to ask questions is uh, through the chat room. So you can find it at geeklab.ninja and tag Marlin, our questions bot, colon questions, or hashtag questions, colon linuxdelta.com. Tiny asks, <clears throat> do you have any recommendations for receiving sensitive information from clients. I'm trying to find a way for clients to deliver a web URL or API key so I can update the alerting system to notify them if there is any system using the tool of their choosing. Most of the time, not their email, some sort of sensitive information from the clients. So Steve, I have to believe you've come across this. Yeah, it's, it's tricky though, because everybody has their own thing. So um, lots of people use something called secure mail so this is some sort of, uh, how do I put this? I'm not exactly sure how it works because I've never set it up. But what I do know is, for example, if you, uh, if your email system detects the keyword secure and it, you know, it basically open, open square bracket, word secure, close square bracket, then what it does is it generates a URL link that's behind a username and password to the person that you're sending the email to. And then you actually have to go and log in to this web portal to do it. That's really, really popular with, with most of my clients. Um, not exactly sure how that works, but the, that's what a lot of large organizations use. I would say there's things like, um, I personally use my next cloud for a lot of these sorts of things. Yeah. So like, um, I use, use all, all kinds of things in Nextcloud. You could also use like Proton Mail. There's a bunch of uh, like Spider Oak has a send feature. Like there's a bunch of these places that will have. I, I even think I want to say that Bitwarden also has a send feature where you can send encrypted credentials to two people in some fashion. So there's lots of ways to skin this. It, it boils down to what does the what is your client or what are you comfortable hosting and or interacting with because at the same token i'm always really skeptical we got a new accountant for doing taxes and stuff like that last year she sent me this link to to something and i was like what is this i don't like it wasn't from their domain you know uh, i live in a small town and so they were using some hosted service and it turned out to be okay but i was immediately suspicious and i imagine that if your clients are worried about um 
securely sharing messages like that, they would also be suspicious of like a, a URL that they don't recognize. So there are lots of ways to do this. I, I would personally lean on Nextcloud or something similar for it. So one of the ways that I've seen, which I've always thought was silly, but alas, it seems to check a number of a number of organizations of significant, in my neck of the woods anyway, size have done this to the point that I've, I look and say, okay, well, this at least is somewhat accepted. They will they'll use two different forms of communication to transmit the information. So, for example, they'll say, like when I got my login credentials to a healthcare, a fairly large healthcare system, they sent the all of the instructions on how to access the thing and the portal and all of that and my username and my all that stuff got sent and just the password nothing else they used sms to send it to my mobile device and again the security nut in me says yeah but that's unencrypted and you're sending it and not only are you sending it you're storing it in a number of places along the way the flip side to that is to anybody else it just looks like a random string now again the security person inside of me says Yes, but security through obfuscation isn't really any security, so I wouldn't do it that way. I like Steve's idea of using some sort of hosted instance, go to a place, come into a place of security, and then let's exchange information. Of course, I'm going to get my, you know, anticipatory plugin for Matrix. If you're looking for a way to exchange secure information, you can create a chat, new keys are generated, you can exchange the information, you can both leave the chat. Uh, within a few days, it's wiped. And even if it isn't wiped, because those keys are, you know, you're, only those two devices have the keys, nobody can get access to the information. So let's start there. But uh, largely what you're looking for is some sort of hosted instance that you can use to set the exchange up. Other thing that you could potentially do, and this is oftentimes what we do at AltaSpeed, we just call them, pick up the phone, and we exchange the information over voice. Hey, here's what your, here's what the password is, or here's the thing. And that's going to become obnoxious, obviously, if you're doing API keys and they're very long, especially if there's a lot of them, Um, but an option nonetheless. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of November 5th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The kernel team has released kernel 6.5.10, as well as an LTS version with 6.1.61. Titanium support is planned to be removed from the kernel in version 6.7. And another update with the 6.7 kernel is that bcache.fs has been merged in. For the Linux Libre users out there, the new Linux Libre 6.6 kernel has been released. Bleachbit 4.6 is out. The LXQT team has announced the release of LXQT 1.4. Nitrix 3.1 has been released. And Fedora 39 has been released. For Fedora 40, KDE Plasma 6.0 has been approved, including dropping support for the X11 session under KDE. CIQ, Oracle, and SUSE have united behind the OpenELA to take on Red Hat Enterprise Linux and have published their initial source code release. In security news, targeted at the DevSecOps practitioner or platform engineer, Kubescape, the open source Kubernetes security platform, has reached version 3.0. And in open source AI news, British Deputy PM throws his backing behind open source AI. Oliver Dowden downplays the risks of artificial intelligence. And lastly, a new open source foundation has started up. The AI Engineer Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to open sourcing and standardizing AI advancements so anyone, from individual developers to large organizations, 
can understand and participate in building AI in a way that's interoperable, inclusive, and community-driven. I'm back from Ubuntu Summit. It was absolutely a fantastic event and a huge thanks to Moro and the rest of the entire team at Canonical. I think my largest takeaway was the inclusion of the younger generation. This was so inspiring to see. So many of you know Simon Quigley, who is an active community member and one of our software engineers at Altaspeed Technologies. He has been working on the Lubuntu project since he was 14 years old. Currently, he's the release manager, and he's also a Debian developer, which is no easy feat. And he inspired the young man, Rudra, who is now in charge of the Ubuntu Unity project to get involved at development, not at 14 years old, but at 11 years old. And now, three years later, I think Rudra is 14, and he jokingly says that one of the things that he, he, he aims to do, if Simon could do something at 14, he wants to be a, just a little bit in front of him and try to kind of outdo him, so to speak. And what was inspiring to me was we sat inside of the flavor talk where they bring in all of the people from the 10 different flavors of Ubuntu and they have a discussion on the realities and some of the challenges of maintaining all of these distros. And what I watched in that exchange, this 14-year-old kid who has been working on this project since 11 years old, so far as I understand it, is treated just as an equal from all of the other adult professionals in the room. And watching that happen and a kid that is from India is able to participate on the same level as all these people is nothing short of, of inspiring. So as far as looking for inclusive communities and trying to move the needle forward and get more stuff done, Canonical and Ubuntu does an excellent job in that way. And I think the fruits of their labor or the fruits of that effort are very clear when you look around at who's, who is empowered to work on these sorts of things. I think the entire community is lucky and fortunate to have people like that involved. The other thing is, I spoke, I went to Ubuntu Summit to speak on my idea of this minimum viable cloud. And so this has been piquing my interest lately, packing my entire world up into a little 6U rack and then running it in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, on a generator, on a battery, these sorts of things. And my talk largely was based on this idea that today the big boys run all of their infrastructure using things that are all open source, Linux and containers and VMs, and all of these things, that wasn't the reality 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you would be told, oh yeah, here's how to deploy all of this Active Directory stuff. And then you would say, okay, that's fantastic. I too want to take home and set up all of my client machines to pull down their policy and group policy and login information and identity management and all of that from the server. And the answer was, great, no problem. Just spend $2,000 on a copy of Windows Server and then $50 for every single cow for every person that touches the server. And then you too can have access to this enterprise technology. And boy, if that hasn't flipped. Today, the reality is you and all of your friends have access to the exact same technology as all of these corporate in environments and the way that the, the cloud as we know it functions. Additionally, because it's all open source, nobody can pull the rug out from you. And the world is continuing to change. So I have been a, a passionate advocate of the Linux desktop for many years, and I'll continue to be so. It's the right choice for me. But as I've watched other people 
move into they've ch- their their expectations are changing they no longer expect to have a computer to interact with technology increasingly it's becoming tablets increasingly it's becoming phones increasingly it's becoming web browsers if they are on a computer you know what the benefit is there linux has never been more ready to meet that challenge you can absolutely if you want the thinnest lightest environment to run a thing to access cloud services linux is the best answer if you want a backend infrastructure to deliver very powerful applications and very powerful calculations and deliver that to scaling from mobile to tablets to desktops, Linux is your answer. And all of the technologies that under under that power that are all Linux and open source. And so I was I was deeply honored that Canonical would have me at their event to speak on this and be able to share some of those ideas. I also had the opportunity to catch up with John Seeger. He is the VP of Engineering at Canonical and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Hey, John, welcome in. Hey, nice to meet you. So I, I want to start with this. Can you tell me a little bit about the Ubuntu Developer Summit and how that event is different from this year with the Ubuntu Summit? What is Canonical trying to accomplish? Yeah, indeed. So um, we haven't done a summit. Uh, and until last year, we hadn't done the summit for a number of years. Um, the Ubuntu Developer Summit was very much aimed at Ubuntu developers. So uh, both the developers that Canonical employs, but also the broader community of maintainers for the flavors. So Ubuntu Mate for Kubuntu for Lubuntu. And it was very, very distro focused. Um, now we're kind of back again so that we did this for the first time last year with a rebrand of Ubuntu Summit. Um, and the focus is still to bring a place for those people to come together, meet meet with you know the internal teams at Canonical, like the foundations and server and desktop team, still provide a place to do that distro work, but also to bring uh, a flavor of the sorts of things that people from around the industry or even outside of the tech industry are building with Ubuntu. So it's about um, people who perhaps are building graphics applications or they work for cloud hosting companies or you know, we've got Microsoft here this year talking about .NET on Linux. We've got uh, the framework laptop folks um, who are coming to talk about how they kind of use Ubuntu and, and how they go through the firmware update process. So it's a lot more about Ubuntu plus all of the things that Canonical make and the things that people then make with those things, right? The summit this year, last year was a lot about Ubuntu. This year, Canonical's trying to kind of broaden the horizon, so to speak, and break out of the echo chamber. Talk about what the benefit is to the community and to Canonical. So firstly, I think it, uh, it's just a nice opportunity to host a really good event for, for people. And it's a little more inclusive, like there's way more topics, right? Anyone can submit a talk. And if you happen to be, you know, there was a chap yesterday doing a talk on building uh, hosted infrastructure for hosting uh, blockchains for small companies. There's um, So I think there's a lot more opportunity for the broader open source community to come and talk. You don't have to be a diehard Ubuntu fan to come to the summit and talk about a thing that you're excited about. Um, and actually, Canonical is obviously most well known for Ubuntu, but it's a it's it's actually a portfolio company of some 40 or so products. Um, and so it's an interesting opportunity, both for us to see how people are holding things and, and where the rough edges are, but also for people to just come and show off their, you know, whatever it is that they're proud of or working on. I'm very passionate and care deeply about Linux on the desktop as a daily driver. And there's been a number of changes recently. And of course, with in Canonical's case, specifically the migration of Unity over to GNOME to shed some resources and focus more on some of the enterprise technology. What can you share with me about the future of the Linux desktop and Canonical's commitment to it? Yeah, so the, around the time, I mean, I wasn't at Canonical at the time, but around the time when uh, Canonical kind of announced the end of life for Unity and moved back to the GNOME stack was a pretty tough time for Canonical uh, financially and, uh, and such. So the company shrunk a bit over the last five years. Um, 
there's been a lot more focus on building a really steady kind of uh, revenue stream. And over the last two years, there's been a really hard focus on really kind of upping our game with our engineering practices. There's actually a, a very well-staffed desktop team with a huge number of vacancies. We, you know, just this year hired a new desktop director. Um, the server team and the foundations team represent some of the biggest teams in the company. That, uh, And I think hopefully we're starting to see a little bit of recognition of that in, in some of the other podcasts and news, you know, Pharonix, et cetera, that actually things are starting to feel a little bit exciting again in the Ubuntu desktop space. So if anything, we're investing more now than we almost ever have. And that, that plan continues, right? It, there, there's, we're still hiring fairly aggressively for all of those teams. Would you say it's accurate to describe the direction that Canonical has taken as an investment to the desktop, but also a restructuring around what makes Canonical profitable so that there is more money and resources to pour back into things like the desktop. Yeah, indeed. We're, we're a growing business, but you have to grow sustainably, right? Like we're One of the interesting things about Canonical is because Ubuntu has been so broadly successful and is used on so many machines, people assume that we're another fan company or we're, you know, um, you know, Ubuntu has so many installs, so we must be 10 times the size of Red Hat. We're not. We're, we're 20 times smaller, right? We're a thousand people today. When I joined you know, two and a half years ago, we were kind of 600 people. Um, so if you, and if you think about all the corporate functions that help canonically exist, like the number of engineers who are maintaining this kind of stack of 40 or so products is not a huge amount. And we have to make sure that we grow in such a way that we can keep doing that and not, not do what we did, you know, not, not be in the situation that they were in in 2017 again in the ideal world, obviously. What role do you think corporations that have resources and capital and, frankly, a customer base to bring in some of that capital play in supporting open source projects? I think it's enormously important. I mean, it it would be, we spend a huge amount of time on Ubuntu and our own kind of versions of things. But in order to make that happen, we do have to do a huge amount of work on upstream projects. I mean, there's many more kind of very successful open source companies now, but there didn't used to be, right? You have to have someone or, or some group of people who are willing to kind of put their hands in their pocket. And while, you know, we, our focus is not 100%, let's hire as many engineers as we can to just work on upstream all day long, we are contributing to the broader ecosystem, uh, I think. Um, I'm very proud of the work that Canonical does. Um, it's, it's couched slightly differently. You know, there's, you know, there's things that people will love and things they will hate, these snap packages, et cetera, but it is all working towards a world where we, you know, bring open source software to as many people and as many audiences as we possibly can in the way that we think is the most sustainable, right? I'm one of those people that always take a look behind the counter. I want to see what is actually powering the conference. And I'm always kind of surprised at how many Linux events aren't using Linux to power their conference. I was pleasantly surprised. I find Ubuntu everywhere, everywhere counter I peek behind every machine is running Ubuntu. The presenter laptop is a framework. Talk about the effort that Canonical has made in the conference and how that's important. I don't think it's just in the conference. It's it's literally everywhere, right? So um, when you get onboarded to Canonical, you're sent some instructions to install Ubuntu and set up full disk encryption. We, we, there's no hard policy. There are people in the company who use other things. Increasingly see a lot of uh, a lot of Macs running Asahi Linux, that's a thing. It's still Linux, right? And um, we have Tobias who's maintaining the kind of Ubuntu Asahi project too. But yeah, it runs, it doesn't just run our, you know, conferences and events. It runs our entire business. We have um, 
two data centers and another being built soon, and it is all running on Ubuntu and Maz and Juju and LexD. Like our entire internal IS operations is all running on Ubuntu and Maz and LexD and Charms and Juju. We we absolutely are using all of our things to power our business. Like the entire business runs on our suite of products, and of course on the hard work of you know other various other open source projects and such. But yeah, we, it, it is dog fooded all the way down. Like it, there's no there's no illusion here. I love that. I came to this conference very excited about Ansible. I've been using it, tonight, and I'm very comfortable with it, and I've been learning a ton about Juju. For somebody who isn't aware of Juju, can you talk a little bit about what it is and why it's valuable for system administration? Yeah, so Juju is a, is a cloud orchestration tool. Um, it has a similar goal to the likes of Ansible, Terraform, Puppet, Chef. It takes a very, very different approach. It's actually been around for 11 years. I think it was a little bit of ahead of its time. Um, but what Juju uh, essentially is all about is, sure, it's about deploying applications on whatever cloud you have available to you, whether that is LexD in your home lab or whether that's Azure. But it's actually more about integrating and operating applications. So like one might argue that deploying applications is a solved problem. Anyone can deploy an application, but that's not actually the hard bit. The hard bit is, okay, well, how do I get that deployed application to integrate with my identity system, with my observability system, with my database, whatever. So Juju is about enabling people to integrate and operate those things, not on day zero when they deploy it, but at day 5,000 when it's got all their like mission critical data in it, right? And so the team I run is um, made up of the Juju team, which that's kind of the engine, but then I have a whole bunch of teams who are discipline specific. So I have a team of people maintaining operators for databases, Postgres, MySQL, Redis, Kafka, observability with like Loki, Grafana, Tempo, Prometheus. We have an identity platform team. I have a team who build a machine learning operations platform, completely open source machine learning operations platform. You can deploy on any Kubernetes with Juju. And that's some 35 services. And I think it's the most compelling way to deploy it. It's all integrated with our observability stuff, our identity stuff. And so, you know, there are there are some rough edges. It's still, you know, we, there's still things I would love to improve about it, but the ecosystem over the last two years has really picked up and we're getting to the point where there's a really nice catalog of first-class open source software, but now you also get all the operations code too. So you can actually use it in whatever infrastructure you have and, and make use of it. All right, so I'm just going to run Noah through a little demo of Juju, and we're going to deploy a couple of things on LexD and a couple of things on MicroKates. Um, some concepts in Juju are we have a Juju controller, which is kind of a server component, um, and controllers have multiple models. So a model is somewhat analogous to a, a Kubernetes namespace or a LexD project. You can think of it as like a folder that you want to put some applications in, a kind of a logical grouping of applications. So models have multiple applications. So that might be Postgres, it might be Prometheus, it might be WordPress, it might be Mattermost, could be Synapse for Matrix. Um, and then applications can have one or more units, right? So you can scale units horizontally. So if you want three Postgreses, you know, kind of go into high availability, something like that. So I've just got a terminal up. I've created a model, and I'm going to deploy our Postgres charm. So you just literally type deploy, juju deploy Postgres SQL. Uh, and I'm going to take that from the... Uh, candidate channel, which is um, the, the channel semantics are a little, so the charm store works a bit like the snap store, so you can have edge candidate stable. Okay. Um, and so I'm just going to deploy Postgres to start with. Um, that's going to take a couple of minutes. So if I just uh, watch the, the status here with Noah, so we'll see now what's going to happen is the Juju controller is going to use the credential it has for my LexD cloud. It's going to go and provision a container, install its agent, and then the agent will go through, get all of the charm code, which is the Postgres operator, if you will. So we call our operators charms. That charm is essentially just 
a bunch of Python code that subscribes to some events. So Juju will dispatch an event to this thing and say, okay, now it's time for you to install. The author of this charm, which is one of my teams, has written in there some Python code that says you need to install this snap, write this config file, add this user. Juju will, it will then return and say, good, I'm installed. Juju will then say, cool, now it's time for you to start. And that might be systemctl start. It might be, you know, start some service in a snap. Um, and then it'll get up and running. So we've just seen here now the, the, the containers come up. The agent is initializing. We'll start to see those events coming through. Unfortunately, the demo is a little bit slow because I'm over a, over a pretty ropey connection here. Um, but one of the interesting things we can do is we can start to track the progress. So we're just seeing it now installing Postgres. In this case, that is a, a snap that is built from source, right? Um, and that's one of the really interesting things about this is you can use whatever you want. This, this charm could go and fetch a binary off the internet. It could use a PPA. It can install a deb. We are actually combining charms and snaps to great effect and because the store the snap store has very very or identical semantics to the charm store we can do this nice thing where we say we're going to release the postgres 14 slash stable charm into a channel and the postgres 14 slash stable snap into a channel and those two things are kind of tied together so you, you always know you're going to get a version of the operations code that has been tested with the version of the workload itself right so you can get real confidence and we have been building pipelines for these things where in our ci environment we spin up a real Kubernetes or a real LexD, we actually deploy the charm and we run end-to-end -end tests against it to make sure the operator can scale it, can observe it, etc. So we're trying to build, it's essentially like democratizing the operations of open source software. Um, we're populating that catalog, but we have some really interesting community members. We have a, there's actually a company called Omnivector who are based in um, Arizona. They have been building a business for the last several years, like seven or eight years, I think, I could be wrong, but they have built a business around building HPC infrastructure for customers using Juju. Um, there's another another chap who's here this weekend who's building a small blockchain infrastructure company. So he sells kind of self-hosted infrastructure for general purpose blockchains, not, not necessarily your Bitcoins and Ethereums, but where people are using blockchains for um, supply chain tracking or, or other kind of purposes like that. So it really is a, it's a tool for building infrastructure for whatever it is you need. And our aim is to put all of the things that you would expect to be in a kind of Linux server store there and maintained by Canonical. So my teams maintain Postgres, MySQL, Kafka, Redis, Prometheus, Loki, Grafana, Kubeflow. Um, there's some identity tools based around the work that Ori do. So this is kind of your OIDC, LDAP, OAuth type stuff. Uh, we have teams who have charms for OpenStack. We have teams who have charms for microcates for charmed Kubernetes. And so essentially it means that whatever cloud infrastructure you have, whether that is an Intel NUC on your desk or you know a corporate account on AWS, you get access to all the same stuff that we're running in our data centers to build Canonical. I want to talk to you a little bit about Matrix. I understand that there is a movement from within inside Canonical to kick the tires on Matrix. Can you talk about that effort and what some of the goals are? Yeah, indeed. This is actually something that I, I spoke with Mark about um, about eight months ago. So internally, Canonical uses Mattermost. Um, we have our own self-hosted Mattermost. It's hosted with a Juju charm in our in our infrastructure. And we also have a couple of community Mattermost instances. Um, and one of the things is I like to make my teams mostly work on public instance, but then we have company internal stuff and people are spread across chat platforms and it feels a little bit kind of awkward. An, an idea I, well, we had last year really was to deploy Matrix and try to create a kind of Slack-like experience, but for the whole Ubuntu community. You know, we have our internal canonical one and we have our Juju Charms one, which is at charmhub.io. I would actually like it if we could have just a Ubuntu matrix server where all of our communities can hang out, the Lexi community, the Maz community, the Charms community, the, you know, the Kubernetes community that use Ubuntu. Um, 
and also we can run our own company internal stuff. So over the last eight months, one of my colleagues, Vashi, who runs our kind of internal charming efforts, the stuff that we host, they've been putting together a suite of charms for Synapse and for Element Web. Um, and so we have that now deployed. It's in beta testing. We're using it um, a little bit for the conference and internally. But I think by the time we get sort of probably through the middle of quarter one next year, we're going to probably make that available for anybody to sign up. So it'll be a Ubuntu.com matrix home server, and there'll be spaces for all of the different projects that kind of fall under the Ubuntu and Canonical wider community. What are some of the challenges you see as you move into Matrix from Mattermost and some, as you kind of, I guess I would say, consolidate some of these other platforms? Yeah, so there's a bunch of challenges. One is, you know, communities, people like the things they use. We still have a whole bunch of people who interact with us on IRC. Matrix is actually very strong there. There's lots of chatter about whether bridges are good quality or whatever, but actually IRC is so well used, this, this one's very stable. So it means that if you still want to sit in Tmux and IRC, like, you, you, doing it that way, you can still interact with the people who want to use Matrix on their iPhone. So it, I think it it is the most obvious way for us to be as inclusive of like as many people's needs as possible. It is open source. Um, the cryptography is, is, is strong. You can use it on your Chromebook, on your iPhone, or you can use it on your Pine phone with the self-compiled kernel, right? Like it, I think it'll give us a really nice platform for kind of establishing more kind of synchronous real-time communication with our community for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and it, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think it could be really, really awesome. John Siegert, the VP of Engineering at Canonical. John, I really appreciate your time, sir. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thanks very much. Good to see you. one 450 noah That's one 850 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So, Steve, I was really excited to learn more about Juju. And I've been kind of on a kick now as I've come back. And of course, you know, the nine hour plane ride back to the U.S. didn't really hurt in the way of professional development and being able to explore technology to its fullest. But I wanted to get your thoughts. So as I'm kind of thinking through all of this different sorts of orchestration technology and trying to evaluate the benefits and and detractors of each, I like what I learn about Juju. So, for example, I like the fact that it learns about its reality at runtime. The idea that you can say, I want Mastodon to show up or Synapse to show up, and it will just say, well, that relies on these other things over here, and they can start advertising their connections and abilities to each other. That is very appealing to me. Where I guess I struggle with some of the design decisions here is, so the choice to use Kubernetes. If your, your choices, so far as I understand it from the documentation, are Kubernetes or VMs. And in that reality, it means that you're you're requiring Kates. And if you're doing that and you're running it on a single machine, it doesn't seem like there is an advantage because we've increased the technical complexity, but we don't get into the advantages of Kubernetes unless we have multiple hosts. The other thing that is of note to me is they don't use Helm charts which is an interesting choice if you're going with Kubernetes. So again, I'm at the very beginning of my journey with this, and I've asked Canonical to put me in touch with some people that uh, can help me explore this further so I can learn more about some of the advantages here. Again, really like the idea of lowering the barrier to entry, lowering the friction. I think this is something that Canonical does uniquely well. They make it possible for anyone and everyone to play at the party. And I think Juju absolutely speaks to this. What am I missing here? 
well, I'm not exactly sure what you're missing, but if you're talking about, so in, in some conversations that we've had about Juju in the past, uh, you and I, we've talked about, well, if it's going on a single node of some orchestration tool, um, that seems like it's a bit of a waste, just like what you mentioned before. So if that's where you're coming from, there's a couple of answers, answers to that. So sometimes the benefits of OpenShift or Kubernetes in a single node aren't from the perspective of, I'm going to keep this alive if a box goes down by moving it somewhere else. Sometimes the the benefits can extend into the idea of, well, I need to keep this application up and running. And so if the PID dies, so for example, you're running an HTTP host like Apache and Apache dies or has a seg fault or something like that, the liveness check that you can put in there means that the orchestration can look and say, oh, well, you're not healthy, kill this and start another one. Mm. So there's that kind of uh, benefit there. There's also some benefit to the idea that you probably can't auto scale things for your based on your load. So let's say, so the counter to the idea of I'm using a single node OpenShift or Kubernetes because I want to keep a pod always up. Well, people will say, well, systemd can be programmed to do that. Yes, it can. Um, but one of the things that is useful is you can scale out multiple pods based on traffic coming in, based on CPU utilization, whatever it is that you like. Um, instead of increasing the number of worker nodes that an Apache host might have to have and restarting the service, you can just simply start up more Apache services. So there's a, there's a lot of advantages to doing a single node, even if you're not benefiting from the idea that I'm going to float these pods around. Another another thing, and I, you know, I'll get off my soapbox here because I kind of talk about this all day long, but when you're working with networking, for example, especially in OpenShift, and Kubernetes can do this with an ingress as well, but OpenShift, when you, when you go and deploy an application, will spit out a route for you with a fully qualified URL that you can just plunk in your browser and away you go. So there, there's a bunch of uh, useful automation that's in the background on top of the idea that if you have any expertise in this area, or you have more than one cluster. So say you have something out on the edge, which is what the lingo is in the industry for. I have a single node sitting somewhere in a data center. It provides you with a uniform way to do your deployment and interface with your application. Like if you, for example, you were running Juju for one thing and you're running Ansible to do something else and you're running Kubernetes to do a third thing when you need to make an update, you kind of have to roll that update all the way across. Whereas if you look at this and say, okay, yes, it's a single node and it's not going to give me the benefit of a full cluster, but my deployment looks exactly the same here as it does in this place, as it does in, in GCP, as it does in wherever else you're deploying it to, there's a big benefit in that. I, so help let me know if you think this is accurate. As I was kind of thinking about this and as I was kind of going into my head, like, where are these tools most appropriate and like what customer base and or user, you know, would gravitate towards this particular thing? So if you're looking for like the simplest way to do orchestration, my thought is Podman is the way to go. It is simple enough that you can just start simple, get things up and running. They work. 
But when you want a gateway to more complex things, you're still utilizing all of the advantages of containers and C grips and all the fun things that come with that. But it's very simple to get off the ground. If you want to group containers together, you have pods. And then ultimately, you're able to generate Kubernetes configs so for your pods. So if you ever do decide that you need to scale it and you need to move it across multiple machines, you're kind of preceded to do so. If you want to go one step above managing containers by hand, that's where I think Juju really fits in because you get the ability to, again, get off with probably the lowest amount of friction. I mean, I I was blown away as I'm watching John sit there on his laptop, and it wasn't even running on his laptop. He just SSH'd into a box, and he's like, here, let me show you how easy this is. And, and like one command, and all of a sudden, it's just there. It builds the container, and it's there. And then as other things are coming in, it's advertising these connections and going, I need a way to talk to this thing. You're a database. You you need a name. Okay, well, here's the name. Well, I need the username and password for that database so that I can put my data on you. Okay, here's that. And it's exchanging all of this information. And all this is happening in real time and without any interaction from the administrator. And it it, it, it is. It's like magic. It's really cool. So I, I, I feel like there's that. And then I still... Where I think Ansible makes a lot of sense is from the standpoint when you want like the lowest common denominator or the largest reaching stick. From the standpoint that my requirements for Ansible are SSH, and that's the end of the list of requirements. And maybe you can make the argument that if you want to do you know terribly useful things with Ansible, then you also need the ability to execute Python code. But you don't have to run an agent on any particular machine. It runs agentless. If you do want to run an agent, then you can run Ansible pull. And for other things, you can use Ansible to command those things too. So I, I, I struggle to move from the idea that that is, is if, you, if you were only going to do one orchestration piece of technology, that that isn't something that you'd want in your toolbox. But I am definitely down a path now and down the rabbit hole of exploring Juju and trying to see where I can push this to its full potential because this is really, really cool stuff. So the last thing that I'd say about Juju, um, I've been aware of it for near on a decade and it was definitely ahead in terms of um, mindshare when Ansible kind of first started coming around. And yeah. so Juju has a long history here. The The one thing that I would I would cautiously mention is that you have to also think about the level of support that you're going to get. And I don't mean you call the company. I mean, you're tinkering around with Juju and you go to the internet and say, how do I do this in Juju? Uh, you're going to have a limited scope for that. Very similar to um, the Snapcraft stuff. Like they they call it cargo, the cargo coding, coding, which is when someone somewhere posted a, a snapshot of like, this works and nobody knows how it works except the original author, but everybody kind of pastes it in. And I'm not to be denigrating. I absolutely do this too. I'm just saying that when you are thinking about deploying something like Juju, you have to think about where is the most likelihood that I'm going to recruit somebody? Am I going to be able to pull somebody off the street who knows Juju? Or am I going to be able to pull somebody off the street who knows Ansible? Which one is a higher likelihood? And that's something to consider when you're considering a business move. I, like I say, I'm keeping an open mind from the standpoint that I want to learn all of the ways that this can be implemented and some of the advantages that it has. And likely, I think what I'm going to come away with is that the real answer here is a mixture of some of these depending on the circumstance. But I'm deeply grateful to 
the people at the Ubuntu Summit for drawing my attention to this and giving me such a, an impressive demo. Because like I say, I like I could not do what what was demonstrated to me with Juju with any other orchestration platform, at least not in the same amount of time that it took to do Juju. So I, I definitely think there's some advantage there. But we'll continue. And I'd like to hear from you. If you use one of these orchestration technologies, why do you do that? Live at AskNoahShow.com. Which one did you choose? Why are you using it? What do you like about it? I wanted to draw some attention to this idea of the Prey Project. So this is a thing that I have largely stayed out of for years. And I've had clients come to me and say, Noah, I want to manage my fleet of laptops or smartphones or tablets or whatever it is. And I don't have the ability to do that. I need some sort of service that will do tracking. And I answer with this and also with companies that are like, and I want, you know, screen spy software so I can keep an eye on what my employees are doing, track when their mouse goes inactive and all a bunch of other nonsense that, you know, the high people at the companies don't want on their machines, but everybody else can have it. My answer has been to steer them away from this and say, don't, don't do this kind of thing. Don't, don't intentionally install a backdoor in your software or in your, in your company laptops. And while I would still say that you would be installing a backdoor in your company laptops, if you install some sort of remote monitoring agent, that is run by a service. Prey Project is unique because their source code is all open source and under the GNU GPL3. So it runs on Linux, which is unique. It's GPL, which is also unique, and they're cost effective. It's a buck eighty a month. And so for a buck eighty a month, you get tracking, you get mass actions, you can send things out, you get an audit log. There's a loan de- or device loan manager. You can keep track of who has what device, a bent event-based automation actions, depending on what happens, one-time automation actions, time-frame automation actions. And of course, when they add new features, you always get access to them. So you can learn more at preyproject.com. This is not for everybody. This is not something you're going to go install probably on your own machine. But if you are a company and you're looking for the least bad solution as a way for asset tracking and you want something that reports in to let you know where your devices are and when they're online and where you can find them. And if somebody steals them, being able to remotely wipe them and that sort of thing. And you're looking for something that treats Linux as a first class citizen. This code is open so you can audit it, know what this company is doing on your device, preyproject.com. I'd like you to check it out. Steve, you drew my attention to the recent news from NetGate. So NetGate made an announcement that Home Plus Lab, a version of PFSense Plus, which is the commercial fork of PFSense CE Community Edition, is no longer going to be available for free download. And so they're going to stop offering the Home Lab Plus version of PFSense. Walk me through your initial reaction. Well, my first thought was I wasn't quite sure who's using this. So I'm, I'm because I didn't go very far down the rabbit hole of subscriptions for PFSense and getting support and stuff like that, um, I know they offer a commercial offering and then they have the community edition and then they had apparently this thing, which I wasn't even familiar with until they said they were taking it away, which seemed to fall somewhere in the, the in between where you could get some of the like you would get the latest uh, features and updates and stuff like that. And there was some level of additional help that was available, but wasn't on the same level as the pro plan. So I don't know anybody that was using this. And like I said, I wasn't even familiar with that. It was a thing before I saw this press release. I feel like the people that are looking for open sourcey firewalls are moving towards other things. 
And maybe that's just, maybe that's not an incorrect feeling. Again, this is the opportunity for you to chime in either in the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja or by writing in live at asknoshow.com. What are you using for your personal firewall? What are you using for your professional firewall at work? I see a lot of traction towards OpenSense. Where I still see a lot of PFSense and indeed why we're still using it at AltaSpeed is largely because it is a known quantity. It's a very known quantity and you're able to count on things kind of being a certain way. Additionally, there is a tremendous amount of value in things like managing multiple devices and those services are built into PFSense and I don't see a lot, as many for OpenSense. Atypical, I see you in the on-air room. Did you have something to add? Maybe not. No. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I'm, you know, it's, it's important if you're on PFSense and you have the Home Plus lab and you are using it to kind of test some of the features in your home lab, you should be aware that this change is happening. You should be aware that this is going on. But I don't think it's you have to run for the door or anything like that. And I, I'm at in in to be clear, if you're on CE or PFSense Community Edition, you're not going to be affected by this. You can continue to use PFSense CE at no cost. Uh, you're going to continue to receive updates. You're going to continue to receive security patches as soon as they're made available. Simon uh, Quigley, speak of the devil, says that uh, Steve is wrong about Juju. The docs are amazing and have been for the last few years, maybe a year or two. So if you want something, um, he is going to put some links in the show notes. So again, I'm keeping an open mind. I'm going to see what happens with Juju, Steve. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more by heading to podcast.asknoahshow.com. What are you going to find there? all the show notes there's so much stuff that we put in the show notes that don't actually make it into the show but you find all those articles as well as all the stuff that we use to make the show available podcast.asknoahshow.com if you want the latest follow us on x i'm at kernel linux he's at linux ovens the show at ask noah show we're back next tuesday 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com have a good week